We're following the Revised Common Lectionary. We've been doing so since last summer when Katie and I preached the Dysfunctional Family series, and a number of you have asked that question of, okay, now really what is that Revised Common Lectionary? Because Bill has been following it in his sermon series on Matthew. The lectionary can date back to the fourth century, and it's a way to combine selections from the Hebrew scriptures, the Psalms, the Gospel, and the Epistle, so that over a three-year period, you can read the majority of scripture. They are put together in a way that one passage often exegetes or explains another. We follow the lectionary sometimes because it keeps a preacher from avoiding those texts that are difficult or keeps a preacher from always going back to those that are really easy. So our scripture selections today are from the Revised Common Lectionary. Our next reading comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. And as we think about that, I ask you to look at our windows. Our windows are a collection of bright, brightly colored glasses, clear glass, and dark. We need all of those colors. It was an eye surgeon who once said to me that without contrasting colors, we would not be able to see anything. So because we now have these brightly colored glasses in our windows, we can see the story that each window tells, and it's the combination of dark stories in scripture contrasted with the light that really tell the entire long narrative that we hear in scripture. I say that as a preamble to the scripture reading from gospel because it is one of our darker ones. And before I go to that, I ask you to please pray with me. God, you who speaks your law is perfect, reviving our soul. Your commandment is clear, enlightening the eyes. We ask now that your spirit illumine this world, that our eyes may be opened and our souls revived. In Jesus' name we pray all of this. Amen. This is from Matthew 21. Jesus says to those that are listening, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come and let us kill him and get our inheritance. So they seized him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he will do to those tenants? And they said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was speaking about them, and they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. Here ends our reading. Some of you have now known me long enough. It's been two years. 
Some of you know that it's a morning ritual of mine to walk the dogs each day at 5.30, and our route begins in the closest park to our home, Oz Park. This is an oasis in all of Lincoln Park. Nestled within Oz Park is a small walled flower garden called the Emerald City, and we have life-size statues that adorn all the corners of the main characters from The Wizard of Oz. This park celebrates its author and the former local resident, Lyman Frank Brougham. Originally published in 1900, it was turned into a screenplay to showcase Judy Garland's talents and the introduction of Technicolor. You might remember that when the movie opens, she's in Kansas and it's black and white, but as soon as she lands in Munchkin Land, it's beautiful colors and it inaugurates the era of color movies. Most summers, we have a showing of The Wizard of Oz with dozens of little girls in blue ginghamed Dorothy costumes racing around. We sing all of the familiar tunes, and then if you really take notice, right before they get to the witch, you can see some of the adults start to squirm or even leave because you know that they are still really frightened of the flying monkeys. One day, the Wall Street Journal burst my bubble with an editorial by law professor David Schoenbrood. He argues that my beloved movie was written to criticize, I quote, the Wizards of Washington as a bunch of charlatans running a scam on the little people of America. Schoenbruder claims that the movie symbolizes the folly of William Jennings Bryan's campaign for the U.S. Treasury to allow our currency to be backed by silver as well as gold. Supposedly, the bleak Kansas landscape reflects the economic depression of relying on just the gold standard. The Wizard of Oz is one of those hot-bagged politicians from the East that we're not supposed to trust. The scarecrow symbolizes farmers who are not as stupid as they're supposed to think they are. And the Wicked Witch of the East embodies those nasty Eastern bankers. The name Oz is even an abbreviation for the ounce, the measure of gold. Some scholars, now that I knew this was potentially an allegory, will claim that Oz derives from Percy Shelley's sonnet Osmandius about the King of Kings. Another interpretation of Oz likens it to a myth akin to an age-old tale of Homer and a heroic journey of self-discovery. These scholars argue the movie is a dream in which Dorothy discovers she must learn to think for herself, finding a brain, feel for herself, find her heart, and have the courage all to defeat wickedness. Is this true? Or is The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy's Homecoming, a discovery that the values of rural society really matter? Or discovering that the real companions of her life and those who love her, but whom she took for granted, are the ones she needs to think about most? Or perhaps it's an af affirmation that her earthly roots give her life meaning and not some fantasy land. Or is it, as Frank Brom claims, just a fairy tale for children. It could be any or all of these, depending upon who tells the story and how and when it is received. Theologian John DeGrunchy writes about mysteries in general, and Oz in particular, with this statement. Simply, the story does not tell us. It invites us to look into a mirror and see who we are, awakening our senses and our sense of self, and also then how we are to live. Jesus is one who said that it took parables to subvert our unconscious worldview. Parables should make us uncomfortable if we are really hearing them. 
It's when we fit them nicely into our business-as-usual world or believe they have no bearing on our world that parables have not served a purpose. Theologian Barbara Reed claims, a parable is to unsettle us and can only be locked from inside for us to see and hear correctly. If we read the parable for truth, the parable will expose the truth in each of us. Now, there is undoubtedly a dark parable, dark quality to the parable that we heard. I certainly gave you a heads up that it was coming, but there's a reason for this darkness, this almost Lenten quality about it, and undoubtedly it has a quality of judgment. In Matthew's Gospel, it appears towards the end of Jesus' ministry and is part of the escalating conflict between him and the religious leaders and those who sought to stifle his message, and it ultimately leads to his arrest. The day after Jesus upended the money changers' tables, he re-enters the temple, and this time they're waiting for him. The chief priests, the elders, and those with authority are all present and demanding answers. By what authority are you doing these things? After telling them one vineyard parable, Jesus tells them this story, the text we heard for today. And this time the images are not veiled. Matthew calls it a parable, but scholars will say it's an allegory. The people and elements in this story have a direct correlation to the lives of those in first century Palestine. A landowner plants a vineyard and provides the residents with the means of production, with a wine press, and all the protection necessary with fencing and a watchtower to keep them safe. God is the landowner and the people of Israel, the people of Israel are the vineyard. Steeped in Hebrew scripture, the Pharisees would recognize this from the writings of the prophet Isaiah, who said that Israel is, I quote, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. The tenants were to assume responsibility to be good stewards of the vineyard, work with the given resources, and ensure that the fruits of their labor please the landowner. This is part of the covenant, this is part of the bargain that all of first century Palestine would know. Time and again, the landowner sends messengers and a son, a son to the tenants to collect on the bargain. The servants sent by the landowner represent the prophets God has commissioned to restore the covenant with Israel. They are denied and they are often killed. The landowner's son is also sent for the tenants to restore the bargain, and he too is killed. With this story, Jesus foretells his own death. Now, the allegory unfolds in a manner not just to tell the story, but to provoke the Pharisees and the authorities, not just to identify with a particular character, but he draws them into an ethical conflict in which they incriminate themselves. The bait lures and they bite. In the story, time and again, the wicked tenants had killed the landowner's servants and then the landowner's son. So when Jesus asks them, When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do? You can imagine the Pharisees' tempers boiling, their necks are bulging in anger, and they reply, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. In this allegory, the tenant farmers are the religious elite, those who are paid to be faithful to God, those who are paid to take care of the people. And their visceral response reveals their plans, and more importantly, it reveals their corrupted understanding of God as vengeful and their continual denial of God and the commandments of God. In full disclosure, 
from my research amongst other preachers who've been preaching on this parable, or shall I say, avoiding this parable, they've been avoiding it not just because it is dark, but because for centuries it has been maligned and used by those who seek to justify anti-Semitism by equating the Wiccan tenets with the Jewish people. That is only a politically motivated interpretation, and it is not from gospel. Consistently, scholars reinforce that the divisions Jesus draws in the parable are not between Jew and Gentile, not in this parable or any other one in Matthew. Jesus is drawing distinctions between those leaders who were denying the good news of Jesus' ministry and Jesus' embrace of all people. To twist the parable to justify discrimination and abuse of Judaism is self-serving, and it does more to indict those who are so motivated as being akin to the leaders who heard Jesus' parable the first time. However dark this parable is, we should not avoid it or its tragic history, particularly as anti-Semitism is on the rise in Europe. Just yesterday, there was an editorial published by Lord Jonathan Sachs, who is the Emeritus Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the British Commonwealth. The title of it was Europe's Scary New Antisemitism, in which he describes the rising tensions and violence throughout Europe that are directed against Jews. He cautions, I quote, Antisemitism was always and only obliquely about Jews. They were its victims, but not its cause. The politics of hate that began with Jews never ended with Jews. It wasn't Jews alone who suffered under Hitler and Stalin, and it's hardly Jews alone who are suffering today under their successors, those radical. In graduate school, one of my colleagues quoted a beloved pastor of hers as saying something like this. The Bible is not a weapon for you to hit someone with. The Bible was created by God to open your heart to know God's love. I mentioned the Revised Common Lectionary serves a vital purpose as we read scripture. One story helps illuminate another and in the long arc conveys a message. So let's go back to the scripture that we've heard today. To unlock this parable, go back to the call to worship when we heard scripture that had been recited throughout the ages from the book of Exodus. Then, Lord, then the God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is the hardest to follow, and it is often the downfall in the allegorical vineyard as well as our own. The God the Pharisees worshipped was one that they had diminished to a small God under their control a small God who they could satisfy with their corrupt interpretation of laws, a God small enough to condone their neglect of the people. And the Pharisees may have claimed a monotheistic religion, but their behavior can only be described as henotheistic, claiming one God among many. They worshiped a God on the Sabbath, but tucked that God away every other day of the week, devoting themselves to another God of wealth, by squeezing the last nickel at work, claiming it was their success in the vineyard, creating hierarchies to dominate others and pamper themselves. Or perhaps it was just the more benign but equally slippery denial of God 
as being the God who cares for the marginalized who need to be healed, fed, taught, and cared for. Those Pharisees lived in a culture built on an economy which celebrates all these smaller gods and promotes the satisfaction one might receive from worshiping temporal goods rather than the transcendent, heavenly, and ethereal God who creates, sustains, and redeems. Perhaps they'd lost sight of God. Like a distant landlord, they might have thought God was too remote and really wouldn't notice. They were so caught up in themselves, they forgot to take notice of God. Our lectionary for today prescribes Psalm 19, which C.S. Lewis calls the greatest poem in our Psalter and the greatest lyrics of the world. And Haydn must have agreed with Psalm 19 as a composition that we heard. The heavens are telling the glory of God. We might hear the beauty of Haydn's masterpiece, but it will never convey fully all of what heaven and earth sing on a daily basis of God's greatness. The heavens are telling, the firmaments proclaim, and day to day pours forth speech telling of God's glory. And then in the psalm, there is the astonishing cultural overturning image of the law as given to us as a gift from God. The laws are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. For it's gold that what investors rush to in times of crisis Gold is what we believe will purchase the good life and security, but Psalm 19 tells us that the law is even better. And it was Tolkien's wise old Gandalf in another fairy tale that would remind us, all that glitters is not gold. The close of the Psalter has become the preacher's prayer. You were the ones that read it in the responsive reading. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable. But this is a prayer for all of us to pray every day, that the meditations that we have and the things that we do every day become acceptable to God. When we read this dark parable amongst all the teachings, hymns and stories of scripture, like the dark glass that sits next to those bright and clear, and we can see and learn the long narrative in which God comes to us over and over again with grace. The landowner did not, as the Pharisees thought, come to kill those who had broken their promises or rejected the servant and son. God's son came for everyone, suffered and died, and then God raised the son to new life, calling all people to live in a forgiveness and to live devoted to God. So where can we find ourselves in this modern-day allegory? I can relate to the paid religious leader easily slipping into my own interpretation of the law, losing sight of how wide and how inclusive God can be. I can get to be pretty isolated, and I can get to be pretty proud at times. But perhaps I'd also like to turn and instead see myself as one of the new tenants, those who are called to care for the vineyard in the covenant that's been restored, honoring all the people, and choosing not to live for common culture, but for the promises made real in Christ. This rejected son goes on to do something amazing. Jesus sets a table and invites everyone to be at one as his guest in a simple meal. He did it centuries ago, and he does it again today for us. 
Do this in remembrance is a command we receive in all three of the Synoptic Gospels and in Paul's letters. The great emphasis is on do this. Bless the bread, break it, and share. Pour out the cup. It's the vineyard that produced this cup. Share it. Remember with your whole body, mind, and spirit. Today is World Communion Sunday, a Sabbath to recognize our common bond through Christ with churches throughout the world who are also celebrating the Lord's Supper. Communion is about reorienting ourselves as recipients of God's grace through Christ and placing God again at the center of our lives. We may drift to believe as the Pharisees that God is distant and uninvolved in our lives, and yet we're invited to act and in our physical act for our body and our mind to remember Jesus' love poured out for us. I invite you to find yourself and your salvation in God through Christ in this meal. Amen.